I'm not the most mechanically talented person, I'm mechanically declined. Uh, when, when we need uh, something uh, to be assembled in our house with a screwdriver or a hammer, I'll admit to you, my wife kind of takes the lead on that. I mean, my, my man skills are pretty low in that area. Uh, but occasionally, occasionally, because I believe in self-improvement, I'll dive into a project as I did this Christmas. We're a little bit past the phase of life where we're staying up all night assembling gifts for children. Some of you are still in that stage where after you put the, the kids to bed at Christmas Eve, you stay up all night putting together these wretched plastic toys that are there to challenge your faith. So I've been out of that phase for a couple of years, but I do have two dogs and we decided it was Christmas. It was time to get them a, a newer dog house. And there's something at the local Walmart called the dog loo, not the igloo, but the dog loo. So I saw the dog loo and it said, easy assembly, 10 minutes. And I thought this was my chance. This is my time to assemble the dog loo. So as I began to put the pieces together, there was one little, one little thing I did not anticipate. In order to properly put together the dog loo, you had to actually put some screws in that were inside the dog loo. I know I'm a big guy, but I'm pretty agile. You know, I'm pretty, pretty athletic. Don't let the size fool you here. So, so I climbed into the dog loo and with my screwdriver and screw, I put it together. And as I'm putting it together, I start hearing giggling outside of the dog loo. And I'm a little bit claustrophobic. And all of a sudden the thought came to me, am I gonna be able to get out of this thing? <laughs> I think the words were, Beth? Am I going to be able to get out of this? And so there I was, the, the term stuck in the doghouse or sleeping in the doghouse, this had never been so true. And, and to prove this is not a, a made-up story, I'm, and you're my friends, I'll show you kind of the scene that ended up happening. <laughs> this is Christmas Day and me stuck in the dog loo. Now this picture went viral. It went all over Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And, uh, and, and I had several people tell me that this brought them more Christmas joy than anything, any present they received. It was their greatest Christmas gift ever. But my favorite line on the social media deal, uh, some of you, a lot of you know David Huff, our ex-associate pastor. He said, this is what you get when you give a 12-year-old an iPhone. So there we go. <laughs> So I deserve it. So we'll move past that picture. Uh, that was a trap. As I was uh, starting to think about physical traps I'd been in, that's the best story I could come up with, but you've been in a trap before. You've certainly seen an animal in a trap. Traps come at very unlikely times. Traps come when you don't expect it, like when you have your head in a dog loo. But traps come and you don't realize that you're trapped until you're stuck and can't do anything about it. You're in the trap, you're incapacitated, and there's nothing you can do about it. And the enemy is setting traps for you. I don't wanna give him glory, and I certainly am not scared of him, but we were aware of that last week when we talked about Diabolus, the devil. It's like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. So he's gonna set some traps for you. I don't know of anything more valuable to my life keeping me from stepping into one of the traps of the enemy than a regular reading and meditation 
on the Proverbs. The Proverbs has helped me so much as it has literally millions and millions of Christians who have lived on this earth, billions really. The Proverbs are different than any book of the Bible in that they're sayings that really apply to both Christians and non-Christians. They're universal writings that apply to people uh, based off what usually happens in life. So you read these Proverbs and there's part of you that say, yeah, that is true. And that truth and that observation gives you wisdom to live your life and to avoid traps that the enemy has for you. So in the Proverbs, we don't necessarily take one proverb and by itself base everything off that one proverb. Really, the most effective way uh, to, to benefit from the Proverbs, I typically would not recommend this in other books of the Bible, but it is this, to, to look on a subject, let's say money, and look at all the Proverbs on money, or marriage, and look at all the Proverbs on marriage. Because the verses typically don't connect. And so they'll, they'll, they'll go from one subject to the next to the next, and there's not necessarily, there's not necessarily a correlation, especially from Proverbs 25 on. These were the writings of Solomon, who evidently wrote these in other ways. He wrote these wise sayings. He wrote these observations about life. These are observations on marriage, observations on civic life, on on how people organize themselves, observation on on, uh, raising children, on handling your finances. And, And someone accumulated all of these, and these sayings go one after the other, after the other, after the other. So what I thought would be helpful to us in these next three or four weeks is to look at chapter 26 and chapter 27 and to pull out some nuggets and identify some potential traps in our life that the Proverbs are trying to help us to avoid. So we'll kind of take these as standalone messages and they'll encourage you to dig into the Proverbs yourself. Now, one time in my life, I tried to read a proverb a day because there's 31 proverbs, 31 chapters in Proverbs. And that is a good way to get through Proverbs 12 times in a year. Uh, But the weakness in that system is uh, the realization that each of these proverbs stand alone. Each of these verses are clusters. There might be, like today, we have two proverbs that are a cluster. But unlike, let's say, the book of Philippians or the book of James, where there's one theme throughout the book, these kind of stand alone. And so by us going into chapter 26 and into chapter 27 and pulling out a couple of truths, it's going to help us understand how these sayings can apply to our life. These are universal sayings that apply to Christians and to non-Christians. But here's the difference. We have the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit brings life to wisdom. And, and he helps us, he's our teacher. So he helps us to be wise in specific situations. And so the wisdom we accumulate is not just information. It's information that's given and then by the spirit, we apply it at the right time, at the right place, at the right moment. That's why we're gonna start with something, a trap that is very, very common to all of us. A trap that all of us encounter. That is the trap of arguing, arguing, something that we're all part of. 
All of us deal with arguing. You can sometimes feel an argument in a room. If you walk into a room or, or sit at a table at a restaurant or at a coffee shop and a family, a couple is there or a family member or close friends that are in an argument, they don't have to say the words. You can feel the tension. I mean, it is just like a substance you can feel. And that's why arguing, arguing is a big, a big part of all of our lives. Now, the, the temptation is the, to always see the negative things that come from arguing and to simply say, I'm done arguing. I'm not going to argue anymore. Now, I grew up as a very argumentative person in an environment that was that way. And like a lot of you uh, that, who went to college, you realize that our formal education system trains us to be argumentative. I mean, we are trained to use human reason to argue every point. That's why everybody who's 23 or 24 with a stupid piece of paper saying they have a diploma think they're the smartest people in the world. They've been trained to argue every single thing. And I was one of those creatures too. I argued everything. So I was argumentative uh, based off some education, which I appreciate the education, but my personal demeanor was a little bit that way too, that I tend to be an argumentative person. And so I started to see that in my life, lots of negative things came from arguing. So there's the first strategy that I took is I just quit arguing. And this is very much what Proverbs 26.4 suggests before we, before we totally just take that by itself and say, well, that's just the way it is. I, I was going to let you know, we're going to look at two different Proverbs that complement each other. But Proverbs 26.4 says it this way. We'll look in the ESV, which is, is kind of the grandchild of the King James Version. So it's kind of a more uh, traditional version. I like to use the ESV and the NLT because it, it gives us two different perspectives. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Then NLT says in Proverbs 26.4, it gives an updated version of this, Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. Now, this scripture has never been needed on this planet, has never been needed as much as it is today since the year 2008 when Facebook exploded on the scene. (laughs) Because every day on your timeline, there's an opportunity for you to get in a foolish argument. Because somebody out there has decided to put something controversial or offensive or foolish on your timeline, and sometimes it's just so ridiculous, you feel like it demands a response. And I've seen this scenario happen with several different people in my life where they are visibly upset after walking away from their laptop. Their blood pressure is up. They're they're completely irritated, and I'm like, what's the deal? And they're like, so-and-so said this on Facebook, and now we've been going back and forth, and I said, well, who is so-and-so? I went to high school with them 35 years ago. (laughs) And we've allowed foolish arguments just to come into our lives. And a great strategy is this. Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools. 
And I'm going to be very careful because of Jesus' teaching. I'm, not, I'm going to be very careful. I'm going to try not to call people fools because Jesus said not to do that. But there are a lot of foolish opinions that we're exposed to in a way we've never been exposed to before. And, and they're, they're foolish and they're ridiculous. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on social media, but it is a big part of our lives, especially for those under the, well, no, that's not true. I was going to give an age category, but women over the age of 50 are the, the biggest, uh, the most active people on Facebook, by the way. So I had to correct myself there. But um, back to social media, my rule is this. If you cannot say it to somebody's face, don't type it down. I mean, it's really easy to be bold. It's really easy to be um, outlandish and talk about somebody when, they're, when you don't have to do that face-to-face. And now, I, I certainly believe that applies even to public officials and, and, and to public people. Now, if you think you're going to tell off a politician or actress or actor, if you've met them face-to-face, then go for it, okay? So here's the deal. Don't get locked in to foolish arguments. Don't get, don't get locked into it because what happens when it's a foolish argument and you get sucked into it, it's a trap for your life. It makes you look foolish. First of all, you are endorsing someone who, who's not very smart. Now, I said something I said something in first service that was really prideful and arrogant, but it was so funny, I want to say it again. <laughs> I had to apologize. I, I said, uh, I said uh, you know, I don't argue much anymore because people aren't smart enough to argue with me. But uh, that's not that bad. But now that is, that is prideful and dumb. But the point is, the point is, often, often we, we, let, we let someone trap us into an argument that's simply foolish. And that other person doesn't want to grow. That other person doesn't have intellectual curiosity. That other person isn't open-minded. It's doing you no good. It's a foolish argument and it's a trap for your life. Now let's go back to the ESV of Proverbs 26.4. So here it is. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now here's the curious part. We're about to spin into verse five, but before we do, the, the original Hebrew language uses the same phrase, and the ESV brings that out, uh, to show a cluster here, a play on words. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. This has been my strategy in recent years. I don't get into a lot of arguments because it's just not worth it. But now look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, that seems like it contradicts each other. We go back to verse 4 again. We'll see even the phrase, I'll answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, in other words, if you never argue, and if you never correct someone, and if you never stand up for truth, and if there's never a sense of this is right and that is wrong, then people will continue to act foolish. Now, now what does this mean? Do these scriptures contradict each other? The, the Hebrew scholars early on, they, they tried to come up with, with their interpretation, which I don't think was accurate. They said verse four applies to practical matters. And verse five, it, it applies to holy matters or religious. Verse four is family and practical matters. Verse five is religious matters. Answer a fool according to his folly. Let's look at this 
um, this, these companion proverbs in the NLT. Let's go back to 24. Let's go back to verse four in the NLT so we can just see it that way. Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools. It helps us understand it a little, little easier. Or you will become as foolish as they are. Now in the ESV. I mean, verse five, thank you. No, you, you were smarter than me. Verse five. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools or they will become wise in their own estimation. So originally, when I thought I was gonna teach you about arguing, I thought the sermon would be like this. Hey, don't argue because nothing good comes out of arguing. But now I want to, as I looked at these scriptures and look at the totality of scripture here as it is a companion, I'm gonna say, when you argue, argue for the right reasons. There is a time to argue, but it needs to be done a certain way. According to verse five, there are times you need to argue. And verse four says there are times you don't. Okay, how do we know which one, how do we know if it's a verse four moment or a verse five moment? The Holy Spirit, he's the teacher. We are led by the Spirit. And there's some times when we need to not get trapped in an argument And there's other times that we need to stand up for the truth that God has. And there's not a formula that lets you know when that happens. That is the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's so many factors in that. That's your role in life. If you're a teenager, you you don't really need to lecture your parents about spiritual truth. I was a Bible thumper at age 14. I used to lecture my parents and preach at them. And that 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 was not the right placement for me to do that. I was learning truth and they were kind of happy I was into the Bible, but kind of annoyed by my arrogance at the same time. So there's a right placement of that. And part of that is just wisdom is just maturity and experience. I mean, we can overanalyze what wisdom is. A lot of it is experience. That's why we need to honor, honor the aged among us or the wise among us. So, I'm gonna give you three questions today. And I want these three questions to be a filter for you to help you determine when you should argue. I would say that most of the time you shouldn't argue. I would say that most arguments are gonna trap you. I would suggest to you that most arguments are foolish. I would suggest to you that most arguments bring about no good. But the problem is if we get into the habit, as I have done in recent years, of avoiding arguments, there are times by the Spirit that we don't speak up as we should. And there's a role that I play as a pastor. There's a role that I play as a father. There's a role that I play as a husband. There's a role that I play as a friend that I need to give an argument for the sake of my brother or sister, for the sake of my family. So here's the first question is, what is the reason for your argument? What is the reason? Most of the time, the reason for our arguments is for, our, uh, for us to get our opinion out there, for us to get the verbal advantage. Most of the time, we argue to make ourselves look better and make the other person look diminished in our eyes or the eyes of others. Most of the time, we argue simply to get our opinion there, or here's another way, Another primary reason, we argue so we won't look stupid. So we'll, we'll say, I don't want to look stupid, so I'm going to win this argument. Because I don't want to look stupid, I'm going to make that other person look stupid. 
which in our home, the word stupid has been a cuss word the last 10 years, so I just feel really weird (laughs) saying that. But you understand, ignorant, maybe ignorant was a better word. I don't wanna look ignorant, so I'm gonna make that other person look ignorant. It it comes from right here. What's our reason? Most of the time, our reason to argue is to make us look bigger and better and make the other person look smaller. I'll show you right where that reason typically comes from is straight from scripture. Let's go to James 4, chapter 4, verse 1. It says the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And verse 2 explains this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now remember, now remember Jesus said murdering was when, when you told someone they were a fool. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you know what this scripture is saying right here? I'll just sum it up in one word. Why do you fight? Because you're selfish. That's usually the reason we fight. We fight because we're selfish. We want our opinion. We want our way. We don't want to look ignorant, so we're going to make someone else look ignorant. And we are going to win the argument. We act like we're perpetually in high school debate class. It doesn't become about the issue. It comes about our persuasive skills. And so we're trapped. The enemy traps us. And just like verse four says, we are in, we are are acting foolish because we participated in a foolish argument. Last summer, the History Channel had a a little mini movie series about the Hatfield and McCoys. Anyone else see that in here? Yeah, it was really well done. It was of interest to us because Beth grew up in Floyd County, Kentucky, which is adjacent to Pike County, Kentucky, which was where the, the McCoys lived and where a lot, of the, a lot of the court proceedings happened there. So when we go back to her hometown a couple of times a year, there, there's evidence of, of that fight through, through plaques and Different, different buildings that existed during decades, decades of feuding. I mean, it's, it's somewhat comical. We've, we've made it comical and, and it's become an apocrypha story kind of in Appalachia and in American culture. But if you really think about it, it's decades of, of, of people dying and, and it's just really primitive thought and really foolish thought. Well, here, here's how it started. How did the Hatfield-McCoy start? There's lots of different theories, lots of different popular theories. The most popular is that someone stole a razorback pig or a a, a hog from one of the families. There's other evidence that maybe it was a dispute about mining rights on the land. But here's the truth of why the Hatfield-McCoy feud started. The truth is this, nobody knows. Nobody really knows why this feud started. There's no documented story. There's no true understanding. There's, there's theories, there, there's stories that have become mythical in their legend, but nobody knows why the story fight, the, the, why the feud started. Now, before you get too judgmental and you think, I can't believe those hillbillies did that. I can say that because I'm married to an Eastern Kentucky girl. That was a bad joke, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> why, why, why did, why, before we get too judgmental, 
People who, who are feuding for years and they don't know the reason why. Think about the last major argument you were part of. By the time the third and fourth and fifth argument, the fifth exchange comes, you're more mad about the fourth or fifth thing that said and don't even really remember the reason it all started in the first place. It's like an avalanche. It just gets worse and worse and worse. The argument gets worse. Here's a second question. What's the point? That's the second question. What's the point of this argument? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish here? Why are we fighting? Why are we arguing? Is there any point to this whatsoever? Because our human emotions start to overtake logic. And because of our pride, because we want to take vengeance ourselves, we are going to destroy that other person either verbally or emotionally or we try to damage the relationships they're in. And we don't even remember why we did it in the first place. We forgot what the point is. That's why the vast majority of arguing is destructive to your life. That's why initially, as I reflected on this subject, both scripturally and from practical experience, it is a wise thing to live Proverbs 26.4. Don't get involved in an argument. Don't step in. Don't step into the enemy's trap. Don't let that trap stop you. So when do you argue? When you argue when your argument's going to benefit somebody else. You argue out of love. You argue out of friendship. You argue out of brotherhood and sisterhood. That's why the scripture that should be a filter to our arguments is Ephesians 4.29. It says it this way. Don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. See, there's sometimes we have to stand up and we need to argue God's ways and God's standards and God's word. And because I love you, because I love you with Christian love and gentleness at the right time, I'm gonna argue his ways over my way. I'm gonna argue with you that cohabitation outside of marriage is not God's will and it does not benefit you and it'll end up harming you. It's not an economic decision. It's a violation of God's principles. I tell you that because I love you. I want to tell you that the Ten Commandments is something you should follow. And while we're on the Ten Commandments, let me talk to you about the one commandment that we, we overlook and it's this. There's a Sabbath that you should keep holy. Sabbath doesn't just mean Sunday morning attendance. It means you should work six days and you should take one day off. You work six days and you take one day off. And if you're not taking a Sabbath, you're breaking God's law. Now, I'll argue that with you. Why? Because I love you. Because I know you're gonna burn out. Because I know that when I started taking a Sabbath 12 years ago, it changed my life. We'll teach more about that someday, but the Sabbath matters. God's law matters. It matters. It matters very much what he says. And so we argue that point out of Christian love. We argue that point because 
We want to build you up. We argue that point because we want to make you stronger. So when it comes to issues of morality with the younger generation, let's say now probably people 40 and under, there's so much confusion on on moral absolutes. So if those of us who know the word of God and we're mature in the Lord, if we never argue because we don't want to feel uncomfortable, we never argue because we don't want the ramifications, how in the world will those who don't know the word of God understand the truth of his word? So we have to lovingly argue important points, the points that really, really matter to our faith, points where the scripture is crystal clear about Points that, that, that God would want others to know about. So that's what we argue. Here's, here's the last question I have for you. Is what's the win? What's the win? What is the win of your argument? Because you can, you can verbally persuade someone that your opinion's better. And you know what happens when you win an argument? You look smarter and they feel, they feel ignorant. And so they're not going to want to be close to you anymore. That's usually what happens when we, when, when we just win an argument for the sake of persuasion or for the sake of verbal skills. A few years ago, during, during a, a service time, a service prep time, something happened to me that I, I regret so much. You know, there's a lot that goes on to put on a service like this. A lot that goes on. It's very stressful putting a service on like this. I, I, you know, and I don't, hey, that's what we get called to do. But from making sure we have greeters, making sure the temperature's right, making sure we have nursery workers, making sure we have children's workers, making sure the band is rehearsed, making sure someone's running the media, someone's running the lights, someone's running the sound, that we have, we have trained childcare workers, from the top to bottom, it takes a lot to put on a service. And thank God I have the opportunity to do that. But it can get stressful. And there was one particular service at another, another venue. So before I tell you the story, don't wonder who is it, who is it. But I lost my temper on one of the leaders in the church. It wasn't even in this building. So someone who's never even been in this building before. And wrong place, wrong time, wrong setting. Someone confronted me about an issue that I was very sensitive about. And I did something that's pretty rare for me. I, I just let loose on this guy and, and pretty much told him off right there before service. And almost immediately, I knew it was in the wrong. So almost immediately, I apologized to him. After the service was over, I pulled him aside. I apologized to him again, hugged him. Sent him a note that week. He did all that kind of stuff. But within a few short months, he was gone. He was gone. And, and he's been out of my life since, since that time. Never could recover from that. Part of that is because, and, and this is just a lesson in leadership, especially pastoral leadership, when you unleash on people, it just damages them worse than, than it does in other types of relationships. So here it is. Did that guy deserve to be told off? Absolutely. Was I in the right? I think I was. But my action, what happened is I won the argument because I disproved something to him, but I lost a relationship. That's what's happened to all of you too. You have won the argument, but you've lost the relationship. Now, thankfully, usually, and I wanted to give you hope, 
my experience in observing life and working with families and, and some limited experience in my family that in a family situation, even when arguments damage relationships, typically over time, those relationships can be healed because you just have to see one another. <laughs> you know, with friends, you can never see each other again, but, but eventually with families, your aunt's funeral or someone's birth or something, you're gonna see each other again and, and typically those things do heal. So I, don't, I, I want you to have hope for your immediate family. But with friends and stuff, it doesn't always heal. So you've been there too. You've won the argument, but you've lost the relationship. You've lost the relationships. That is why I'm gonna suggest to you, only argue out of love. Only argue to make someone better. Only argue to push someone to their higher calling in Jesus Christ. That's why Galatians 6.1 encourages us how we are part of giving God's grace to people. It says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Isn't that a great phrase? Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. I love the humility in that. You, you, you restore people, but you stay humble. Keep watch on yourself. I wanna tell you that none of you have have participated in any sin that I, either I have not participated in or I don't have the potential to participate in. Now, that might, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, that's what the scripture says, attitude to have. Keep watch on yourself. So this is not a prideful thing. We're on a journey and, and only by the grace of God. Amen? Only by the grace of God. So restore someone in the spirit of gentleness. That's why when you argue... And you identify the win. You should argue out of love. You should argue out of gentleness. You should argue out of truth. You should argue not because you want to be right, but because you want your friend to be right. Not, not because you want to be this persuasive debater, but because you care so much about your friend. You want them to know the truth. And when you do that, good things will happen. That's why James chapter five echoes Galatians 6, 1. And it says this, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a beautiful scripture that reminds us that you and I are partners or we're participants, we're vessels is a better way to put that, in distributing God's grace. We distribute God's grace to one another. And when we help people not sin, that's a good thing. It's a good thing when we help people not sin. So it is that our argument, our arguing shouldn't flow out of selfishness. If we argue, it should flow out of love and we should want to make somebody better. So that filter, what's my reason? What's my point? What's my win? Let me tell you what your win should be to love that person you're arguing with. Let's come back to the beginning, Proverbs 26, 4 in the ESV. We'll read these two scriptures one more time and we'll pray. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Then verse 5 says it this way, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Come let's stand together in the attitude of prayer. God, thank you that Let's, let's pray for someone that we feel like is in a trap right now. Would you pray for someone God's bringing to mind somebody that's in a trap? 
God, we bring to mind someone who's in a trap. And God, we say, set them free, oh Lord. Set them free from that trap in Jesus' name. And Lord, before we point out the trap in someone else's eye, in someone else's life, Lord, let us pull the log out of our own eyes. And so we say, God, thank you that your grace is setting us free from every trap of the enemy. And God, we're asking today that we would be led by your Holy Spirit. Lord, let us sometimes respond like verse four says. And let us just not fall into the trap of the argument. Let us walk away. Let us pray instead of arguing. And God, let us be courageous enough to live out verse five, where we lovingly and gently by your spirit point out the truth to someone whose way is foolish. And Lord, we believe that. We thank you for that. And we, we honor you and we praise you for that. I invite our prayer partners to just go to that back wall. We only have a couple minutes left together. We don't have a long time at all. But I know the rest of this day is gonna be a really active day. Like we're gonna be really worried about finger foods and parties and football and all that kind of stuff. So it's not gonna be the most contemplative day typically for most of us. So I'm gonna give you just a short little gap before I dismiss you to have some time of meditation and prayer. Just a couple minutes, just connect with God if you can. So we've dealt with the sermon today. I feel like that's been dealt with. But here at the front, to your left, in that back wall right behind the center section is a chance for you to take communion if you choose. You can take that as an individual. You can take it with your spouse or with a group of friends. And we have prayer partners on the back wall. They're here because they want to pray with you. Don't be too prideful to get prayer. Do you know I go and pray with our prayer partners frequently? Frequently I do. Every Thursday morning, I pray with our intercessory prayer team. And I, I'll, I'll bring them stuff about my life. So they're here because they want to pray with you. So they're here for you. Beth's going to lead us in a song. These last couple of minutes, put your focus on God. And then in just a short minute or two, I'll come and dismiss us.